The following podcast may contain spoilers, profanity, and views or opinions that may not be representative of the author's intent of the articles discussed. We don't always take ourselves or the subject matter seriously either. Listener discretion is advised. The following is a Galactic Netcast production. For more, go to GNCasts.com. <laughs> and welcome to the Alien Invasion number 259, recorded on Monday, April 8th, 2019. I am Anessa, along with my co-host, Brad. Hello! Welcome, one and all. As is our usual thing, we will be talking about aliens and alien-related things, like space, in this episode. So what sorts of things besides aliens and space? Well, that's pretty much it. We have music for space, scientists attempt to photograph a black hole, and a cigar-shaped UFO is spotted in Rhode Island. And we will also be reviewing Invasion of Chestnut Ridge. But before all of that, though, our question. <laughs> if there are indeed planets out there, with life, intelligent life, I should say. Do you think that those beings worry about UFOs or conspiracy theories like humans do? Are they as paranoid as humans, or do you think they're pretty practical, logical, grounded? God, I'm hoping that they've got their <laughs> crap together. <laughs> if you're going to travel interstellar space, I don't think you have time for making tinfoil hats. Maybe they're like some super cool metal hats. <laughs> super cool metal hats. <laughs> I could go with the default unobtainium, which seems to be a <laughs> popular sci-fi metal. I don't know. I guess it kind of depends on like how I'm trying to think of the word. Not necessarily practical, but reasonable, maybe. I don't know. We're kind of governed by like our imagination and emotions. So we tend to overthink things that may not necessarily be a thing. Or the current state of anti-science. It's always been a thing, though. It's just gotten It's just worse. more noticeable now that everybody and their grandmothers on the internet. I'm doing research. Tappity tap, 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 tap. <laughs> I got my PhD. The earth is flat. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> I got my PhD in Google. <laughs> what? Uh, fun times. And now for the news. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to a Galactic Netcasts production. All right. So as I mentioned, music for space, which I thought was kind of a cool story. You always think of, you know, like different experiments with plants or animals or insects or human reproduction, that sort of thing. But you never really think about like, music and space and how it can affect the astronauts. Music has long been known to affect people's mood. A certain tune can lift up or bring you to tears, make you focus, relax, or even run faster. Now a study is investigating how the power of music may improve human performance in one of the most stressful and alien environments we know, space. Music can help release a cocktail of hormones that have a positive effect on us. 
oxytocin, endorphin, serotonin, and dopamine. Besides the pleasure we get from it, music can be used to prolong proficiency and reduce anxiety. Stress factors in space can lead to disrupted sleep, impaired time perception, and spatial orientation. Space appeared to me as the perfect testing ground to use anti-stress music, says violin teacher Luis Luke Alvarez, whose Music for Space project puts the psychophysiological research of music at the services of space exploration. Could he scientifically select the best music to reduce stress of a crew member? Fast forward to the Music for Space experiment, which ran last year at DLR's Short Arm Human Centrifuge as part of the first been your thesis, human edition. Ten volunteers rode on a centrifuge, being spun until they felt one and a half times the weight of their bodies. Half of them listened to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and the Planet Earth 2 soundtrack by Hans Zimmer, Joshua Klieb, and Jacob Shea, while the other five spun around with no music. <laughs> Exposing people to repeated hypergravitivity could help us find countermeasures to maintain well-being on space exploration missions, says David Green, education coordinator at the European Astronaut Center in Cologne, Germany. Coping with hypergrax I cannot read. <laughs> Coping with hypergravity is not always easy. Coping with hyperactivity is not always easy either. So True just story, throwing that out there. That's what I was starting with, and that's what I'm going to finish with. All right. So changes in the vestibular system can lead to disorientation and dizziness, which vestibular, I believe, has to do with the ears and inner ears and all that fun stuff. So anyway, test subjects can become tense, anxious, or even fearful. The team from Hungarian and French universities evaluated the stress levels on the subjects by looking at muscle tone with a device called myotone, as well as measuring the levels of stress hormones and recording the subject's feelings. The music samples were shortlisted after taking into account both the changes in speed of the centrifuge and the preferences of the listeners. The study showed that music had a positive impact but would need more tests to get statistically meaningful results. Participants had a tendency to prefer a slower pace, constant pitch music, to ease through the acceleration. Joshua Klebe, co-composer of the Planet Earth 2 music, said, It's amazing to hear our music has the ability to exist far beyond the series itself. I have such tremendous respect for anyone involved in space exploration and can only imagine the pressures astronauts endure. Today, there are two guitars, a keyboard, and a saxophone on the International Space Station, but instruments would also be a part of future trips, too. Scientists have found that playing an instrument can result in immediate benefits to several brain functions, strengthening memory and reading skills, as well as increasing reaction times. Back on Earth, the Music for Space project aims to put the space music library at the service of communities in distress. Music is not just leisure. It is a very special gift to humankind to be used with care and intelligence, concludes Luis. And I got that from phys.org, physics.org, I guess, P-H-Y-S dot O-R-G. If you want to read the rest of the story, I did cut some out. And they also have some videos that you can watch, you know, people spinning around in a centrifuge, or at least <laughs> dummies. <laughs> For those that are unfamiliar with the workings of a centrifuge, it's kind of cool to watch. So 
Yeah, and there's a picture of Catherine Coleman playing a flute on board the ISS back in 2011. I don't know. I guess I just never really thought about people playing instruments beyond the guitar. And I think that was because of, um, now I'm drawing a blank on his name, Canadian oh, astronaut. yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris, <laughs> Chris Hat, Hat, Hatley? No. <laughs> oh, my Aiken. <laughs> Hanson. Hadfield. Bob. Chris Hadfield. We'll get there eventually. I'm sure somebody is listening to this show going, it's Chris Hadfield, idiots! Shouting, Hadfield! Hadfield! I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, maybe Monday isn't the best day to record. Yeah, well. But it seems to work for us. It's so. interesting. Yeah! Anything you'd like to add to the story? Not really. I, I think that I don't really think that this is study worthy. I think we've already determined that music can not necessarily alter your mood states, but you know, like when I'm feeling really depressed, I try not to seek out like the cure to listen to because I want to change my <laughs> mood, you know? So I, I, it only makes sense that if you're going to be traveling long distances in space that you'd want to pick music that would try to keep your mood on an even keel. I suppose. But at the same time, like, I kind of feel like the stress might be a little different in space. And so maybe you wouldn't be as susceptible to music with space travel if you're being all vestibular-y and stuff. I don't know. I, I thought it was an interesting study. I think the more interesting part would be to compare how much it can affect a person in space or even just going through the whole centrifuge process versus someone that's not under that sort of physical distress and compare like how much of an impact it can have on both parties or if you see more extreme results maybe with people in space because they're already under more stress I would think than probably someone here on earth, you know? So I think kind of seeing the differences that way and how it compares between the two sets of people would okay. be kind of my, my thought process on, on the study. I know that's not what they were exactly going for, but that's what I would want to see out of it is how does it compare? Yeah, no, I looking at it from that perspective, then yeah, I could see there being a benefit to that. So, and maybe further on down the road, once they kind of establish more statistics on people that are going through the centrifuge and having, you know, like this physical outside stress on their body and mind, I guess, <laughs> react to music. And then maybe they can take that further on down the road and be like, okay, this is how music on earth has an effect on, on people. And even if they get like those same people to do the study, but you'd still need that. I don't know how you do the control. I don't know, but I think it would be interesting to see the differences between the two. Sure. Okay. No, that makes sense. Speaking of space. More space. More space. I like space. <laughs> and this story comes to us from space.com. Uh, here we go. The Event Horizon Telescope is trying to take the first ever photo of a black hole. Astronomers orchestrated radio dish telescopes across the world into an Earth-sized virtual camera for a bold new experiment attempting to deliver the first-ever image of a black hole. 
The telescope collaboration is set to make a big announcement of results this week, and members also described their research approach at a talk in March. Now, the astronomer's idea is to photograph the circular opaque silhouette of a black hole cast on a bright background. The shadow's edge is the event horizon, a black hole's point of no return. A picture is worth a thousand words, and a photograph of a black hole would be an important tool for understanding astrophysics, cosmology, and the role of black holes in the universe. Now, if an astronaut laid an orange on the surface of the moon, the citrus fruit would be very difficult to view from Earth. Black holes are just as hard to spot, said Shepard Dolm. Doleman? Doleman? That's my guess. Doleman? Uh, the project director of an ambitious new project called the Event Horizon Telescope. Uh, Shepard shared his anecdote with an audience at a panel at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas last month. Uh, the event was called EHT, a planetary effort to photograph a black hole. One of the EHT targets is about 10% of the size of our solar system. Let's see. And uh, this astrophysicist is from the University of Amsterdam. The supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way called Sagittarius A star is about the size of the orbit of Mercury. If a spaceship could zip astronomers out of the Milky Way, which is about 50 billion times bigger than Sagittarius A star, then spotting this black hole among the billions of other stars and planets in the galaxy would be quite tricky. To observe the supermassive black hole at the core of the supergiant elliptical galaxy, whew, Messier 87, the EHT team had to turn Earth into a virtual, virtual hmm, telescope platform. That's because the power of the telescope to resolve images is limited to the size of its dish. And by using an array of instruments across the world, the team is effectively breaking up the dish and scattering the pieces globally to make one big space eye. Now, the coordinated observations will also be made in X-ray and gamma-ray bands. At the project's core, it's 200 scientists who want to answer two questions. Uh, the first is simply, if photographing a black hole is possible, but the second important thing uh, they ask is if Einstein was 100% right about how black holes behave. And let's see, uh, who is this? Shepard is quoted as saying, uh, da -da -da -da. Einstein told us 100 years ago exactly what the size and shape of the black hole's shadow would be. If we could lay a, cr a ruler across that shadow, we'd be able to test Einstein's theory of the black hole boundary. The team also wanted to build models that would describe black holes in various circumstances, which will then be compared to EHT observations. Holy crap. Uh, in the work described at South by Southwest, the team used graphics processing units, GPUs, like the ones used in your favorite video game consoles or your computer to model all the hypothetical varieties of a black hole environment. They produce hundreds of gigabytes of 3D volume data to model the possibilities. I wonder if they had like a PS3 array. I know those were pretty big with astronomy uh, teams. It's possible, or they might have upgraded to like a PS4. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, a little more, yeah. It's processing really, power. Uh, if you get a chance, dear listener, uh, take a look at news stories of PS3s being used as like processing farms, essentially for 
data for astronomy purposes. Uh, it, it's absolutely, it's wonderful to see these, these sad PS threes that were going to be thrown away <laughs> being repurposed for something uh, truly wonderful and uh, important. Okay. Uh, they produce hundreds of gigabytes of 3d volume data to model the possibilities Let's see, photons, plasma, gas, magnetic fields are all described in the black hole's forecast. Once they get one, the team can compare an image of a black hole's shadow to the different scenarios processed by the GPUs in order to make the most realistic simulation of how a black hole behaves based on our current understanding of physics. So, damn. Yeah. <laughs> also... It, I don't know that it was mentioned here, but April 10th at 9 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time is when they're going to announce the Event Horizon Telescope's first results. Yeah, so, so two days from uh, today, uh, the recording of this particular episode. Yeah, and we got this from space.com. If you yep. want to take a look in the show notes and see additional information, if you're like, they have some really neat graphics that talk a bit more about... a black hole and the different components if you're not very familiar with the different components i don't know astronomy is a very big vast science and there's a lot and i know people have a hard time wrapping their head around well one the vastness of space um but just learning about the different parts and stars and whatnot the physics of astronomy once you get to black hole level uh, of astronomy, all bets are, are kind of off to a certain degree yeah. until we can, you know, gather enough data to see if Einstein was right. Uh, and if not, uh, where do we go from there with the data we have and uh, redo that particular portion of physics? Yeah. Yeah. And there's also a cool map that shows you where all of the telescopes are located, too. So you can kind of see them scattered throughout the world. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's like you've got Chile, you've got Mexico, you have Arizona, you've got Antarctica, you've got Greenland, you've got it all over the place. Yeah, so. and they had to do it all over the planet to get the amount of data that they needed to to make this thing happen. So, uh, yeah, please do check out space.com and uh, just do a search for Event Horizon Telescope if if this information isn't up in the show notes right away. Uh, you can you can find it there. It's it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Kind of big news. Kind of a big deal. Do you like scary movies? Did you answer yes to that question? Have you ever thought, hmm, I'd really like to listen to two random strangers talk on the internet about some movies that I may or may not have watched at some point in my life. Sometimes they even bring guests on, which adds to a little bit of the banter. Sometimes we cover the news of the week. Sometimes we don't talk about the movie at all. Sometimes one of us gets a little bit drunk. It's just the way that we do things over at the Podcast of Terror, which is a production of Galactic Netcast, in case you weren't sure. If you're interested in this, please go ahead and head over to gncast.com slash pot. Subscribe and enjoy the crap out of it. Speaking of a big deal, there's a big deal in Rhode Island. What? Yeah, that's what I hear. <laughs> Tell us more. Well, you are in luck, dear listener and or listeners. <laughs> um, this was a fairly recent sighting, too. This was on March 27th of 2019. So this individual who we have no idea who it is, they 
decided to remain totally anonymous and provided zero contact information to New Fork. So this is where I found this. I saw what seemed to be a cigar-shaped object glowing brightly zoom across my home, then fly across the sky again. Just moved into our new home. I have noticed a ton of low-flying military helicopters flying over our home at all hours of the day into the night, at least three to four times a week. I am fully aware there is a military base in Coventry, Rhode Island, so I accepted the fact that they were doing drills of some sort. On March 27, 2019, at 8.30 p.m., I heard the helicopters flying low to the point it was vibrating my home. I went outside and looked up into the sky and saw the helicopters flying away. What I saw next was baffling. I saw what looked like a shooting star, but it wasn't that. It was low enough to see the cigar-shaped, quote, bright light, unquote, zoom across the sky when it went back and forth and then over the trees. I could still see it, but with the tree limbs, it looked like it was flashing, but it wasn't. It was a constant glow. I took up my cell phone to videotape it, hoping to catch it again, and I did. Now, could it have been some sort of military drone? Maybe, but I've never seen a drone fly across the sky this fast. Then again, I have no clue what the military owns, but it was by far the craziest thing I've witnessed in my whole life. That would be pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. True that. Yeah, I didn't see, because it's a spreadsheet that I pulled it from on New Fork, so I didn't see footage attached to this particular post. It would have been cool to see, even if it was shaky. <laughs> um, there was one in there that had tried to capture their ufo sighting but had like no luck it didn't turn out or something but anyway it would have been neat to see but yeah so that was in i'm probably gonna say this wrong and i apologize to people in rhode island skituate rhode island s-e-i-t-u-a-t-e yeah we'll have to see <laughs> that you did as good as i could okay if, if anybody is from rhode island and can tell us exactly how that should be said feel free uh, to feel free let to us straighten us out Yep. And the duration of this sighting lasted about 20 seconds, it sounds like. So, yeah. If you like what you've heard on this Galactic Netcast production, please consider helping us out by going to gncast.com support. On that page, you'll find a link to our Patreon campaign, where you can make a small recurring monthly pledge as little as $1 a month. You can also shop on Amazon using our affiliate links. When you make a purchase, a small portion of that goes to us with no extra cost to you. Again, go to gncast.com slash support. And now, Brad and Anessa watch a thing. Picks and warnings. <laughs> and that thing is invasion at Chestnut Ridge. Bum, bum, bum. I was very disappointed. I'm just I... right out of the gate. If you get a title that's Invasion at Chestnut Ridge, you shouldn't get Ghost Facers from Supernatural. <laughs> We've been watching a lot of Supernatural, so <sighs> expect more of that in the future. I'm yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I was thoroughly disappointed. I thought it was interesting. Now, the whole I'm going to flip the video footage upside down at the beginning was kind of distracting and lame, but... Overall, I thought some of the stories were kind of interesting. So, yeah, to be clear, <laughs> the information was very interesting. They did interview a number of people, people that 
actually took part in these investigations or were witnesses uh, or were or... witnesses or they had documentation or recordings of the people that actually witnessed some of these older sightings in the Chestnut Ridge area from a historical information standpoint it was great it, it really especially if you're playing Fallout 76 it's kind of in that area kids and it's just neat to hear the folk tales and and all of these these stories of of people who witnessed big feet multiple bigfoots um and ufos and things like that but the video the videography choices that were made were high school student level oh and shaky camera with stationary witness Ooh, shake and, the camera and that's exactly when i said <laughs> oh great we're watching a ghost facers episode uh. I, <laughs> as a person who did i i was a part of a a group that uh did ghost investigations and uh ufo investigations and things like that they do ufos too uh they they can <gasps> i totally want to join there's a serious time commitment. Is there? Yes. Uh, like overnights during the week, mm. weekends. I, once once I became a father, that that was done. That's um, a bummer. Anyway, but anyways, to the point. What was my point? My point was, <laughs> you're documenting all these things. You're getting that data, that information. That's great. But if you're gonna make a kind of a documentary you know, make better choices when you're filming stuff. And it really kind of felt like they were trying to go for reality TV, shaky cam, Blair Witch type feels found footage stuff. And it just, it didn't, it wasn't appropriate. It didn't fit. If you're about to talk to a dude who like was a, a sergeant on duty or something like that somewhere, you don't shake your camera. Like you, you're getting electrocuted. <laughs> while you're doing the documentary it's just it doesn't it doesn't fit the tone it doesn't you know maybe they got teased bro but you know well he would have fallen over he wouldn't have continued to stand (laughs) and that's my biggest complaint the information given to the viewers of this particular thing was great uh but the the presentation i i give it a solid two out of ten it made me sad yeah, um, the camera shakiness was, I think, probably what bugged me the most. But like Brad said, the information that they shared was really quite interesting. And they did try to do, I guess, kind of like artist renditions. The, yeah, the of animations some of the... that they did were, were helpful and interesting. Yeah. And, the... and they added to to it for sure. Yeah, and that was really nice because... You know, when people are describing something, you get 10 different interpretations of that one description. So to have individuals take the time to create what the person may have seen based on the information, and they're talking to these people. So I would think that these animations and images are probably pretty representative of what they saw. Yeah, it just kind of makes me want to go up to that area. (laughs) To see if I see anything, because it wasn't just, you know, like UFOs, but it seemed the, not implication, but they kind of hinted at 
Bigfoot being tied with these UFO sightings, which I thought was really interesting because um, you don't always get that particular angle. It's usually like, oh, I saw Bigfoot across the pond there. Um, but instead, you know, you've got like this light coming from the forest and then you have like these Bigfoot type creatures with glowing eyes, which I thought was also really interesting. But yeah, I don't know. If you have an hour, I would recommend watching it. Don't let the shaky camera footage distract you from the stories being told. And just to hear from some people, one individual in particular who had an experience and was a UFO researcher up to a certain point, and he had this experience that just shook him enough to where he never wanted to do it again. He was like, I'm done. So I just, you don't necessarily hear that sort of story with hunters, I don't think. I could be wrong. <laughs> if you come across any, send them my way. I'd love to watch them. So. If you have a question or comment about anything that you've heard on this Galactic Netcast production, email contact at gncast.com. Leave a voice or text message at our number, 805-328-3966, or go to gncast.com slash contact. We read, listen to, and appreciate all of your feedback. So I think that's going to do it for this edition of The Alien Invasion, a Galactic Netcast production. If you'd like to read more about the stories we covered on this episode or other content we've covered, click the links in the show notes. Also, I forgot to mention, we watched Invasion at Chestnut Ridge on Amazon Prime. Yes. So that's where we found it for streaming. We would like to thank Monkey Warhol for providing our intro music. It is a song called Alien Syndrome. And you can find it at monkeywarhol.bandcamp.com. Also to Retvarn von Dernberg, a composer from Germany, for our closing song called Be Water. Learn more about him and his music at thecaravel.net. And thank you to Ben Olson for recording our disclaimer audio at the start of this episode. Thanks, Ben. And thank you for joining us. So, final thoughts? Is it good to be flu-free? Yes, it is good to be flu-free. And also, we get to see Avengers in just a few weeks. Yep, we're going to see it on the 30th of April. So there you go. That's all I got on my mind right now. That and seeing Shazam, but that's that's for another day. All right. Thank you, thank you, and have a good night. Okay, bye! bye. This has been a Galactic Netcast production. For more, go to GNCast.com.